0: Uh, finally, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether you found an episode of the podcast, particularly enjoyable or enlightening, or you know, someone who'd be a great guest, or you'd like to offer constructive criticism, or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, hit me up, reach out to me at one of the aforementioned social media channels, or if you're old school, like I am, drop me an email detoxpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and take care. Xander Masser is an occupational therapist. We will find out exactly what that is for those like me who don't know over the course of this uh, conversation. He is a husband, he is a father, he is a Canadian. Although not born in Canada, he lives in Canada. He was smart and moved up. Uh, he is a musician and he is the author of a photography book called Unburying My Father. How can you author a photography book, one might ask? Well, we answer that question over the course of our conversation. Uh, Unburying My Father uh, features thousands of photographs that were taken by Xander's father, Randy Masser. Uh, Randy was a hemophiliac, and in the early 80s, before there was screening for, uh, for HIV, um, he contracted it via a blood transfusion, and unfortunately passed away in 2000 from complications uh, regarding HIV. And the book really is a conversation between Xander and his father, uh, having recovered all of these photographs, really coming to terms with loss and uh, not having conversations when probably would have been a good idea to have conversations. And the way that Xander speaks about growing up with his dad and how awesome his dad was, and how the aftermath of his dad's passing affected him is so powerful to listen to and I you know every one of these episodes is my baby this one affected me in a way that very few of the other ones so far have so uh, I think it's a really powerful listen and uh, I hope you enjoy it so without further ado here is Xander Masser
1: Hi, my name is Xander Masser. I am an occupational therapist by one of my professions. I'm a husband, a father, I'm a musician, and most recently added to that list of identifiers is the author and creator of a narrative photography book. And the book is titled Unburying My Father. And so this project has been... From conception to now over a decade long, but the last couple of years is when it really took off. But basically the book is a, a narrative about my father's life. My father's name was Randy. He was a professional photographer based out of New York City. He had about 25-year career as a photographer, and he also was born with a bleeding disorder called hemophilia. And in the late 70s, early 80s, the blood supply in the U.S., which was funneled all over the world, was contaminated with HIV. And the medication used to treat bleeding disorders was derived from blood and contaminated, and unfortunately, my father was one of 10,000 other people in the U.S. who, who contracted HIV this way. And in January of 2000, he died from AIDS-related illnesses. I was 14 when he died. He was 52. And it's now 22 years later. And I am finally, after all these years, finding what I find to be a really healthy and creative way to process my grief, understand it, learn to live with it, in some ways kind of proud of it which is directly related to my dad's work and my own work in this book but uh, yeah it's been a a hell of a journey and i'm super stoked to to be here talking to you about it and i like uh, when people ask questions about the project and
0: my dad and about his work and
1: our work is now a collaboration which is super cool after all these years after he died so
0: yeah i never even thought of it that way but that is absolutely true that it's it's a collaboration he's kind of speaking through you
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting kind of outcome of this project is that initially it started out as just me wanting to share his photography. And then it really turned into more of storytelling in combination with the photos. And that's where it became a lot about me and my story and about my relationship with him. And that's kind of where this collaboration came out of or was born out of. And now we're at the point where in order... For me to share his photos, he needs my storytelling. And in order to share my story, I really need his photos because they're both compelling as individual entities, I think. But in order for people to really latch on and, and care a lot about it, I think that they're kind of interdependent. And so my dad and I are dependent on each other now, which I think is just so amazing. And it's brought this
0: whole new element to our relationship all these years later. Wow. So I swear this first question ties in to everything, sure. but I was reading about you and I saw the words occupational therapist and I have heard those words used as a profession before, but I had no clue what an occupational therapist actually does. So for mm-hmm. the layperson who's not aware of, of what that is, can you explain a little bit about what you do?
1: Yeah. Great question. So occupational therapy, by the way, the word occupation does not refer to job or employment, which is a a common misconception. Most people don't know what it is until they need to know what it is or a family member needs to know. But the word occupation just means any task of daily living, whether it be brushing your teeth, cooking a meal, or going to work, or doing a leisure activity, any task. And so we are a, a, a rehab professional. And we use functional tasks to help people recover from whatever their injury is. So it could be physical health where someone injures their back and we use what they're interested in as opposed to rote exercise like a physio might do, which physio is great, by the way. We work in conjunction, but our goal is to make people functional again. We also work in mental health capacities. We work in schools. Personally, I work mostly with older adults, and so I evaluate people's safety and autonomy in their homes and help to adapt the home to make it accessible. I often work with younger adults with disabilities as well. So more on the physical side. It's interesting you asked that because I think that my OT education background profession really ties in with this project. And in a way, I don't think I could have done it without having become an OT. And also, in a way, I think I've occupationally therapized myself because (laughs) what I've done is really I've used many tasks that are meaningful to me. That's integral to OT is whatever task is being used to as a therapy has to be meaningful because without it, the patient or the client or the individual really can't be motivated. But I've been super motivated by all the tasks involved in putting this book together, which includes scanning, firstly, unburying, but then scanning over 10,000 slides from my father's entire photography collection, Wow! uh, collecting and curating stories and turning the whole thing into a book. And so I've used occupation, the term meaning task, to heal what has been hurting me for a long time. And that hurt comes from living with grief, not really knowing what to do with it other than keep it silent. And so it's facilitated this opening up of my life, my emotions, my heart. It's transformed me in many ways. And so it's totally been cathartic, therapeutic. And because OT is, is so task-based in order to heal from whatever an ailment is, I think OT just super ties in with this really well. And actually on that note, based on this project, I've actually created a a grief workshop, which I've been delivering at a couple different events and conferences around the country. And it's very much OT oriented because it's actionable. Every step of my workshop involves a task that somebody has to do. It's mostly writing, but sometimes it's remembering, visualizing the whole ideas. It's about creating. Uh, as a way to process grief. And so there's a lot of layers of OT woven in and out throughout this whole project, for sure.
0: Yeah, uh, subconsciously, I w- I'm i wondering if going through the experience with your, your father being ill and ultimately passing away was maybe a pathway that led you to consider occupational therapy as a vocation.
1: Yeah, man, totally. And actually, now thinking back, I'm pretty sure I wrote about that for my admission essay into the master's program. I was living in a home with a man who had a physical disability. So part of hemophilia for many people, especially people like my dad who had severe form, basically involves internal bleeding into joints. And over years and decades of internal bleeding, his knee joints were deformed and he basically wasn't able to bend one of his knees. And so he had a limp. He used a cane a lot of the time. But on top of that, I also grew up in a home with somebody who had a congenital illness, a terminal illness, and an infectious disease. And so there's just a lot of health care going on in that type of environment. Even though I was not involved at all with my dad's health care, which is a whole other topic of conversation that we could get into today. But I do think that being a healthcare professional and specifically an OT, it has to be related to to my experience growing up. I think it definitely ties in for sure.
0: Because you were 14 when he passed away, how much did you actually understand of hemophilia and HIV slash AIDS because you must have been like a freshman in high school at the point when his illness was reaching its end stages. So as you were in elementary school or going through your adolescence, how much of what your dad was going through were you able to process?
1: The short answer is not a whole lot. And it's one of the themes that I write about in the book. Basically, when I was very young, I, I'm not exactly sure how how what age I was, but our parents told us that my dad had hemophilia and they explained what it was and I have one memory of him self-infusing, which is what hemophiliacs often do to treat bleeds. They use a needle and there's a medication that's in a liquid form and basically it introduces a clotting factor that they're missing, which is what hemophilia is. Right. That wasn't always the treatment, but that was the treatment that was developed that Eventually became contaminated with HIV, but it's still used today and was used when my dad throughout the rest of his life. Anyway, when I was about 10 or 11, my parents sat my brother and me down and they called this family meeting and I could tell something was not right. The only thing I could think was that they were going to get a divorce. It wasn't even like they didn't get along or fought a lot. I just couldn't think of any other reason why we'd be having such a serious meeting. But... During that family meeting is when they told us that my dad had AIDS, that he had HIV my entire life. He actually contracted it before I was born, before I was even conceived. And they explained the terminal nature of it. And at that point, early 90s, AIDS was definitely talked about in the news. Not really so much in the context of hemophilia, but it was talked about and was a household name in terms of the disease. So I was young, but I knew what it meant. Fast forward the following three years were the last three of my father's life. We didn't talk about it once, never, not one time. And so the things that I only learned really as a result of doing this project, there are many. But one was all the injustices around his infection which I just didn't learn about. I took it upon myself for this project to really do a deep dive into what happened and also learned about my father's advocacy work in the hemophilia community, which led to eventual law being passed that compensated families who were infected. But I also learned that my father didn't talk about this really with anybody. And that came out of a few things. One of the ways I put this project together is that I reached out to about 40 or 50 people that knew my dad And I just asked them to share stories with me. I was a kid when he died. We didn't have adult conversations. And I was just like, there's just this piece of my life that I felt was missing and could be filled by learning about who my dad was as a person from an adult perspective. And so his story is told in the book through other people's memories of him. But what was missing in all of those stories was any mention of how he felt about his illness, how he felt about the injustices of contracting HIV, fear of death, fear of talking about death, none of it. And so one of the things I did for this book was just ask my mom, why don't we talk about this? And I think there are a lot of reasons. Firstly, she said that it was my father's wish to maintain positivity in the home. And so that took the form of total silence. And I think there are generational differences as well I think I mean I know for a fact that my dad's parents were not open to really talking about the more challenging stuff and so it just kind of went by the wayside and I think in terms of my mom's relationship with my dad which I learned a ton about for this project she was so preoccupied with caregiving for him and he was so preoccupied with managing his cocktails of medications, trying to stay healthy, still showing up for all my baseball games, all of Graham's band practices. He remained a very present dad until the end. But there was never a space to talk about this. And so one of the big revelations I had from this project is that I took that on. Like that was the behavior that was modeled for me. And so after he died, I just remained silent and I didn't talk to anyone about what I went through I wasn't living with illness but I was living with grief and trauma and I wasn't willing to talk about it I wasn't prepared and I had a world of family and friends that didn't know anything about what I went through and for two decades that was really really hard for me I wanted to open up I could feel the desire but I had no clue how to do it and only in retrospect do I realize why I was so clueless. And that was because of the way my family kind of managed that, that information. And I, I feel some anger, but I'm not resentful. And I'm really able to meet my parents with a lot of love and compassion and empathy because I can't imagine how difficult, how challenging living with that trying to raise happy children, how do you approach that subject? And I think there are ways, and I think that they could have, but they didn't. And so that's just one of the big major takeaways for me and one of the life lessons I've learned through reflecting on on my past in this way. And so it really is informing my present and my future in a big way.
0: You said in that monologue, so many powerful things. As I've gotten to know your story, I've been trying to wrap my own head around because I'm 10 years older than you and I'm a member of the LGBTQ community and HIV and AIDS were such a, for lack of a better term, scary thing. It was such a scary concept. Just the fact that there was this disease that there were multiple ways you could get it, but most of the ways that it was transmitted is transmitted obviously because it it's not gone away were severely stigmatized at the time and still are to a large extent. And that stigma spread out, right? So if you were HIV positive, it doesn't just affect you. It affects your partner, your parents, your children, every person that is kind of in your periphery. And having an idea of really what society was like in the nineties. I almost understand why your parents maybe wanted to shield you and your brother from that. From receiving any of the any of the backfire from the stigma. Yeah,
1: I think you bring up a good point. There is historical and societal context there that is definitely coming into play. And I think my dad was afraid of the stigma. I know he did have to disclose to a few people and he did eventually disclose to his friends. It's interesting. I remember when they sat us down and told us about his HIV AIDS status, they actually told us that we could tell anyone we wanted. Hmm. which I thought was pretty interesting. Like they said, you can tell your friends if you want. We're not like deliberately keeping it secret, I guess, from other people. And I do remember telling one or two friends. But yeah, I I think it was super stigmatized. And actually, well, not I think, I know it's one of the things my mom mentions in the book, which is that initially when he got the, the HIV positive test, They were very much, and this was in the 80s, very afraid to tell anyone. The stigma was you'd shake somebody's hand and get HIV. Mm. But one of the very vulnerable and intimate things my mom shared with me was that their sex life completely stopped because she was terrified of contracting it, of getting caught up in the heat of the moment. So that just ended and that alone has to have been so incredibly hard on their relationship. And there's so many factors Working against them in terms of how to deal with this in a healthy way in a family dynamic. But I'm going to go back to what you initially said there, which was that when someone receives that diagnosis, there are so many other people that are impacted, right? Their family, their friends, their coworkers, whoever. And so, in my mind, looking back, and this is coming from also a healthcare point of view, and And a holistic healthcare point of view, which is that I like to look at health as just way more than physical, but it includes our social environment, our family, our friends, our people. If that part of our life is not going well, our health deteriorates. And looking back now, it was such a missed opportunity for my dad's care team, the hemophilia treatment center, his physicians to pull us in. There's an opportunity to open up the conversation, let his kids see what he does in a session with his care team. That would have allowed me to think of some questions. I knew my dad was sick, but I didn't know how to ask questions about it. And so I think that would have been a really great opportunity for our family to just be pulled in and recognize or acknowledge as part of my dad's health. Right.
0: How do you get to a point when you can look back on this and be, I don't know if forgiving is the word I want to use, but not be bitter or angry at lots of things. I mean, the experience not being shared with you, maybe not necessarily being able to grieve immediately in the right way, just would imagine that it would take so long for you to get to a point of okay i understand and i'm okay with this so i'm just wondering what your process was like for dealing with the inevitable anger and confusion that comes up first and foremost i i think a lot of my personality does come from my dad
1: and he was the opposite of a bitter angry person that aside after he died i was living in a house with my brother and my mom a year later. My brother moved away to college and left just my mom and me. Inside my home, I was really angry. And I didn't understand it. And I just directed all of it towards her. And it fucked up our relationship for a while. Looking back now, there are a few ways in which I think I'm able to not feel bitter or super angry it's not even that i don't feel that it's just i feel like i can direct it a little bit more accurately for example when i did a lot of reading and learning about the tainted blood tragedy and learned how structural that issue was that allowed me to understand my anger a little more and understand where it should have gone but then again it had this extra anger of like why the hell didn't somebody help me to learn that when i was younger but there's an element of understanding my past and my family's past that just helps to ease at least stress or tension or anxiety about it because i think it's easier to be angry at someone or something that you don't understand right i'm trying to say The other part of that is that as I was collecting stories for this project, my mom shared incredibly vulnerable stories with me about being my dad's partner and being his caregiver. And so as I learned about the incredibly challenging times she had of just trying to stay afloat while he was alive and then really trying to stay above water after he died. I I was just so much more easily able to meet her with compassion and my anger dissolved and it has healed our relationship because of this project. We talked really for the first time about what happened 10, 15, 20 years ago about how our relationship deteriorated after he died and it's really helped us to patch things up and we've always been close and i love my mom she's amazing but now we're more friendly and now we're more understanding of each other and i'm super grateful for that so if that's a result of this project then it's easy for me to soften up about it and feel a little less angry
0: that's a win in (laughs) and of itself you know yeah yeah i this could be an American thing I guess I have no other frame of reference so I'm gonna just say it's an American thing and I think it's more a guy thing than a woman thing have trouble with grief any extreme emotion that is not anger I think a lot of men in particular have issues with and grief is such a complicated thing particularly when it involves a parent and you're young on top of that Mm-hmm. did you act out did you internalize what was your initial reaction
1: you mean after he died so i was 14 it was three weeks after i turned 14 that he died so really hitting at the beginning of adolescence how much is being an adolescent versus being someone in grief in terms of my behavior maybe hard to say but I would say I very much internalized. I don't think my behavior was super problematic, but I definitely started smoking weed a lot. I started drinking, shout out to my brother for negatively influencing me. <laughs> <laughs> I think my, my brother was acting out probably more than me. He was doing a lot of stupid teenager stuff that was like a little more extreme than normal, I would say. High schoolers shouldn't get arrested that many times but he did so anyway i think initially like i was saying before i was just super cold and angry towards my mom and then i was high all the time so i was really sleepy so at the house i was moping sleeping kind of despondent in the house i was much happier outside of my house i really loved being with my friends and trying to live a normal life and have fun i was playing a lot of music and music has always been really important It's a basic human need for me. And I think it ties in to grief because my dad bought me my first guitar a month or two before he died and I really started to get into music after. So it's definitely tied in and it's definitely been healing for me. But the biggest thing really in terms of my behavior and my actions were pretending, glossing over anything having to do with my dad. Any mention of him, I so badly wanted to talk about it and at the same time, absolutely could not do it. And so uh, that's how I was for, for quite a long time. And if somebody met me, there would be no indication that I was hurting, that I would be in pain emotionally. One of the things I share in the book is something I never shared with anyone ever, not even my wife, which is that I kept a photo of my father on the shelf above my bed. And for three or four years after he died, every night, every single night, no matter how high or drunk I was or sober, whatever, I would give it a kiss and say, I love you. And for some people that might feel like something that they wouldn't want to share with anybody else. But for me, it has just been so incredibly freeing to share that and it just opens me up it opens other people up and I'm getting a little off topic from your question but the more vulnerable the content is that I share the more love I receive back and
0: I wish I had known that a long time ago and I think some of that is when you're 14 you don't know like that's no. the reality of the situation and All I really have to go on there is my experience as a 14-year-old. And when I was 14, Mm -hmm. I didn't know shit. I think maybe kids are a bit more in tune with their emotions now. But in 1990, when I was 14, in 2000, when you were 14, we didn't have those tools. So uh, I I think it's something that is sort of a gradual growing into. And part of the reason I do this podcast is because some people get to Not 14, but 34, 54, 74, and still can't deal with this shit. Yeah. More than should have to be in that situation where they get to a certain age and they can't deal with stuff like this. Yeah. So uh, the vulnerability piece, was there a specific thing that happened where it clicked for you? Or was it just growing up and becoming more in tune with the person that you were becoming?
1: No, something clicked. Firstly, just doing that kind of outreach to my dad's network and then receiving multiple stories a day, just flooding my inbox for a few weeks or a few months was an incredible experience. And I I had a three or four or five-month period where I cried every day. And, I mean, that is so not who I was. And that part was really influential for me and just helping me realize how badly I needed to do that and just let some stuff out. But as I was collecting stories and kind of curating them to bring them together and tell my father's story, I did it chronologically in the book. So it starts at the beginning of my father's life with a story from my grandmother and goes along through his lifespan. But along that timeline comes me. I'm not in there all before I exist. But basically when it came time for me to start writing my stories about my dad, I put on paper these experiences about my grief and my loss that I hadn't shared with people like the one I just told you. And even just putting it on paper without even sharing it with my wife or anyone, it immediately felt good. And I've always loved writing. So it's specific to me. Not everybody loves writing. (laughs) Yeah, but I do. And so that's why this project came out the way it did, because that's what my interest is. But it immediately felt good. And then when I started to share it with people, with my wife, my family, a few friends here and there, my editor, it started to elicit these kind of deep conversations and connections with people. Where someone would say, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Or here's an experience I had that's similar. Or just started to open up this conversation. And it just clicked. And I was like, now I've got something. Now this project is actually about me. Maybe even more than my dad or as equal. It's a story about grief. And so it just clicked in those moments of finally putting myself in. And one of the other things that happened was that as I was placing my stories, I printed them out and made storyboards, my stories alongside dozens and dozens of others. And I was just like, holy shit, I have been isolated for two decades, but I was never alone. There are all these other people that are grieving my father's death and all these people who still love him and who still cry when they think about him and it blew me away. And I was just like, I am surrounded by a collection of people who love my father almost as much as me. And that has had a profound impact on me. So that's one of the big major takeaways of this project is how we're not alone. If I try to generalize this to other people, but how easy it can be to not feel alone. Just
0: by asking a few people a couple of questions. right? Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to kind of keep myself together here. One thing I was curious about. So did your dad take you and your brother out when he was doing photo shoots? Was that like a thing he tries to involve you in regularly?
1: He didn't take us on site, but what he did do, he turned our basement into his studio and he would very often have me either step into a photo just to like get positioning right or Mm. he would like set up the cover of a wine magazine and he would have me move things here and there while he was looking at the camera and then we have these amazing photos of when my brother and i would have sleepovers with our friends my dad would corral us all into the basement and he would do these photo shoots of us just being idiots and he loved it and It's weird. It's not a normal sleepover activity. I feel like kids would cringe or not want to do that, but somehow he just made it fun. He also had a dark room, so I can remember the smell of the chemicals and watching him hang the photos to dry and showing me how to develop and stuff. And I don't have any of those skills now, but (laughs) I do remember him showing me. And photography was just like synonymous with him. He never ever left the house without a camera around his neck, no matter what he was doing. He was relentless and he really was an immense talent. His photography is incredible. I'm not sure if you've seen any of it yet, but-
0: I've seen some um, of it. This
1: whole entire project started with my brother, Graham and I just going into that basement where we spent so much time being photographed, watching my dad take photographs, viewing his photos on the old slide projector, the Kodak carousel thing. And we went down there 10 years after he died. We were just curious, what what did he leave behind? What's there? That's when we unburied the 10,000 slides. And
0: that, that was the impetus and the beginning of this whole journey. So, yeah. Do you think that he left so much work behind to have something for you and your brother to remember him by?
1: I don't know. I think there are maybe a few answers to that question. I think that because my dad did not have the language and the space or the motivation to talk about his struggles and his challenges, I think he funneled a lot of that energy into photography. And he started taking photos obviously before we existed and there's a lot from before we were around, but I think that one photography kept him grounded in terms of maintaining who he was uh, his identity and his personality. It was like, I'm Randy Master and I'm a photographer. I'm not Randy Master, a sick, dying person. But the other really incredible part of this project, And I think it's true of most artists when you learn their backstory is that it has allowed me to appreciate his work, his photos, his art in a totally new and different way. And his photos are somehow really emotional, even though the content is not necessarily heavy or dramatic in many ways. Like there's a photo of a man reading a newspaper underneath a highway overpass that to me evokes so much emotion and so much humanity. And I'm able to feel that way because I know his story. And so it's a really cool part of this book for anyone who reads it is that they're looking at beautiful photography. Yes. But it's paired with these stories and this vulnerable content that latches you on. And once you're latched, that's it. It's done. And and these photos take on this whole life and this whole meaning. And it's just a whole other way to get to know somebody. It's through their art, through their lens. And photography is very literal because it's what he saw. Mm-hmm. So what he captured is what he left behind. And he didn't leave any note. He didn't leave any video. He could have. He knew he was dying. He could have had a conversation or left us some message in words but through this project I'm realizing that if I want to speak to him or I want to communicate with him and find out how he felt or how he thought I got to look at his photography and I do all the time and I have it hanging on my walls and it's always been an important part of my life but it's taken on much newer and more impactful meaning now
0: I would imagine being in your shoes. And feeling the emotional weight of all of this and feeling like, okay, I need to have a circle of people around me that are going to keep me from becoming a complete mess because I'm confronting all of this. What did you do to make sure that you were emotionally stabilized or building kind of a circle of trust around yourself? And did you even realize that that was something you had to do before you did it? So I have some obvious answers and then maybe one that's not so obvious.
1: My wife has been my number one support person she has been very involved in this project, not just as my emotional support, but practically speaking, she's done a lot to help me put this together. But she's just been so supportive of me in every step of the way. And I'll throw my brother into the mix there too. I've consulted with him on so many different elements of this project. And so we've had these conversations where I'll have these realizations, revelations, like, well, I can't believe I didn't realize that dad never talked to us about his illness he was sick for so long how could he have not talked to us and then i called my brother we're having the same revelations at the same time right when i'm sharing the information with him and so it was really important for me to have those discussions with him one maybe non-conventional answer is that i didn't realize that i was gonna use this platform so much and i didn't think it would be so healing but social media has been like pretty incredible for me i'm not historically super active on social media i do consume it but i don't post a lot but i started to post some more vulnerable content for example on the anniversary of my father's death on 20 years before i was really sharing about this project at all i just shared some things about how i was feeling in that moment and some reflections on the past and I just received so much love and support on social media. and I just loved it because I could take the time I wanted to say what I wanted to say, which has historically been very hard for me verbally when I'm talking. I just find I get stuck with my words. Could have fooled me. So yeah, it's not like that anymore, but it was for a long time. But then I could just put it out there and step away and let people read it however they read it, let people take it in however they want to, and I can go back and revisit or not. And I just loved it. It was great. And I was like, this is a whole side of me that's important, that has existed, that no one knows about. And now I'm putting it out into the world. And it gave me the confidence to put my project on Kickstarter, which is how I funded it to create this book in the first place and put it out into the world and to share not just my dad's photography, but my personal story. So there's a lot of negative aspects of social media and negative impact on our society. And it's effed up for a lot of reasons, but I found a really great way to use it. And I know, and we all know that it's very powerful. So harnessing that power in a healthy way, for me, it was really helpful.
0: Using it for good. I um, yeah. often tell people, or at least try to balance, because we're all aware of the fact, hopefully at this point, that social media can be damaging in so many different ways, but it is also enriched and empowered so many people. And maybe you can't have one without the other, but it's important to look at the fact that for a variety of reasons, the advent of social media and being able to reach people with stories that are personal to you and possibly impactful to others has been really, really important. Yeah, I I totally agree. And you can curate your social media,
1: Right. right? So I would encourage others to curate, to hear
0: the kind of stories they want to hear. Right. It's possible. It definitely is. So because this book has been published, you've been doing a lot of interviews and a lot of discussions about it. And I wonder, A, how it feels to you to be talking about such heavy topics on a regular basis. And I guess the flip side of that, or the second part of that is, have you noticed that because you speak about such stigmatized or difficult topics that people then become more open to you about things as a result.
1: Hmm. Yeah, they definitely do. Talking about this project and my personal life and my emotional life, it's gotten easier the more I do it. And I love doing it, honestly. Having conversations like this one are my reason for being. This whole book gets to the core of who I am, which is somebody who likes to connect with people on a deeper level. So it's really facilitated that like I could be at a dinner table with some friends or acquaintances and somebody knows about the project or asks me about it. Inevitably they end up talking about themselves, telling their story about someone they lost or some challenge in their life. And it just opens up conversation it does and that's one of the major goals of this book and this project it opened me up and i really feel like it can open others up and it has because people read it and then they call me or they email me and they open themselves up to me and they feel safe to do it because i've done it for them and i i hope to keep doing that i gave a talk so One of the other things I've been doing is giving talks and workshops at conferences. And the first big one I did was a conference in Texas and it was really scary, man. There were a couple hundred people in the room and there was no podium, it was Ted style, whatever. And I was terrified. And during the talk, I read the eulogy that I wrote for my father's funeral. And I just stood on a stage In front of like two or three hundred people and just bawled my eyes out and i looking back at my former self or my older self it would be shocking if i went back and said yeah you're going to do this one day because it's not who i was but it is who i am now and and people applauded me and i'm not boasting what i'm saying is that it's powerful for anyone to be vulnerable in front of others, even if it's in front of your family, your friend, one person, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. The point is it's honest and it's authentic and people appreciate that and respect it. And I think it allows
0: for a deeper conversation to happen. I think I thought of a good closing question. So I'll ask that. Is there a life lesson thing that your dad taught you while he was alive, that you still keep with you? Is there something he ever pulled you aside and was like, son, this is very important or an action that constantly replays itself in your now adult life?
1: No, there's not. He wasn't that kind of dad or person. However, I learned a lot from him just by being his son and the behavior that he modeled for me which was that my dad was very gentle and really funny and very friendly. And he had this warmth to him where he could enter a room and you're just kind of his friend already. And I've, maybe somewhat consciously by osmosis definitely took that on so just seeing that behavior modeled for me i think i learned that joy is important i think i learned that laughter is important and i learned that art and creativity is not only important but it's a way to express. i think that it needs to come with words too which was maybe the missing piece for him but he expressed a lot through creativity and the nature of photography, and especially his, is that there's beauty all around us. It doesn't matter where you are. You, you could be at a, I'm, I'm thinking of a photo of his now, which is just like a taxi cab on top of an auto mechanic lift. And like, it's a beautiful photo. And I, I, it's like the ugliest place in the world. It's like a <laughs> deep, dark alley of Brooklyn somewhere where somebody's fixing an old taxi cab. And it's gorgeous. And I've taken a lot of life lessons out of that, which is just notice my surroundings, appreciate them. I think my dad, for all his illnesses, for all his his body being under attack from all, all different angles, my dad fucking loved life. And he loved being alive. And so if there's any lesson I could take at all, and it was obvious. He didn't say it to me. I he showed it to me, and I, I take that on. And I feel the
0: same way. Wow, that is pretty profound. This, I think, is uh, like the most. Emotionally, I've gotten ever speaking to someone for this thing. I, I'm, I'm usually pretty stoic, but uh, you, you got me, Xander, for That's real. That's the point, man. Yeah. Was there anything else that was there anything that I missed, I guess, or that I didn't bring up that, that you wanted to talk about specifically? There, there was one thing. Okay. You had asked a
1: question that I think I kind of missed the answer or I missed the answer I wanted to give, which was about like kind of like my initial reaction or behavior after he died. And I was in that phase of like with all adolescence where you're kind of like questioning, like, why am I this way? What is the point of life? Why, why am I the way I am? I think I think a lot of young people ask themselves that question. And for me, the answer was just always, well, I'm the way I am because my dad died when I was 14 and I'm grieving and I'm sad, even though I wasn't like a overtly depressed or sad person. It was just like, my dad's death informs everything that I do and every thought that I have. This project completely flipped that thinking on its head because I shifted my focus from his death to his life. life. And so for me, it's like now I, I, I can see so much more impact on my life from his life as opposed to from his death. His death did impact me, obviously, but now that I've learned about his life and who he was as a person, I'm like, oh, well, that's that's who I am. I'm the same way, and, and I'm that way because he was alive, not because he died. And so that was the answer that I wanted to give to that question.
0: That's that's a really good answer. Okay, so I, I'm going to hit stop. And... Okay. Grief is difficult, right? It, there's no linear thread that it follows you don't know when it's going to hit you Sometimes people pass away and you grieve before they're dead. Uh, Sometimes you grieve in what some people consider the proper way, which is right after somebody passes away. Sometimes the grief comes later and sometimes the grief doesn't end. Um, And it's difficult to talk about even in the best of circumstances because there is no uh, rhyme or reason to it. So I really appreciate Xander taking the time to talk about something that really needs to be heard by a lot of people and uh, just his his growth and the process by which he has come to the place that he is now I think is so profound Uh, I just really really appreciate him taking the time and I appreciate him not just doing it for this conversation but almost kind of reliving it uh, over and over again, whenever he uh, does speaking engagements. Um, if you want to know more about Xander, know more about the book, there are plenty of ways you can do so. There is RandyMasserPhoto.com where you can buy the book, uh, and there is also social media, of course. Uh, he is XanderMasser, Xander Z A N D E R M A S S E R, on Twitter and instagram and uh please give him a follow if you can and thanks again xander for sharing your story once again super super powerful hopefully get to have you back someday because there's plenty of stuff we haven't talked about yet oh and i should also give a shout out to xander's brother graham for organizing this conversation graham's a good dude as well hopefully we get you on too man Thank you for listening to Detoxicity. I hope you found this particular episode interesting. And if you are new, I hope you go back and listen to all of the older episodes. Uh, Once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this show. And uh, there are a lot of things that you can do to continue to support our mission, continue to support this podcast. Uh, follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, Twitter, and I'm on TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Uh, you can also send me an email if you'd like. I'm at detoxpodgmail.com. At I am always on the hunt for people with interesting, inspirational, and powerful stories. So if you know somebody who fits that bill, or if you yourself fit that bill, please don't hesitate to drop me a line via email or via social media. Uh, Please make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform that you're listening to this on. Uh, Rate, comment, help a brother out, uh, help us move up in the rankings. Uh, Follow me on social media, like I said. Uh, follow our patreon or subscribe to my patreon actually patreon.com slash detoxicity pod you get access to exclusive episodes you get episodes a little earlier than the general public you get a cool ass sticker lots of stuff once again patreon.com slash detoxicity pod quick shout out to calvin williams for providing the music and uh doing his magic on the logo, which was originally designed by Jacob Block. I thank you all for listening. I wish you all the best. Please take care of each other. Till next time. Peace.